Father, I pray that that would be our response this evening, that we would come and we would adore you and adore your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray these things tonight. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight we're going to be having the homily from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And you know already that these are all passages of Scripture that are pretty familiar to you and pretty even familiar culturally. If you remember this Advent series we've been doing this year, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the various responses of the various characters from the stories of the Incarnation. And so in the first week, we looked at Joseph's response to the angel's message, and his response was to obey. And then we looked at Elizabeth's response, and then last week, we looked at the response of the shepherds. Their response was to worship. This evening, we're looking at the response, the reaction of the wise men, but also we're looking at Herod, and we're looking at the religious leaders of Israel to see how they responded as well. And so if you will, follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray tonight that um, we would be able to see the story of the incarnation in a new way. Father, I pray that we would experience even the depth of the incarnation um, in a way that we have not experienced it before. I pray that we would, would experience this story as a story of hope and a story of peace and a story of love and a story of joy, even in the midst of troubled times. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So back in uh, 2000, I went to see a NCAA soccer playoff game. It was at Clemson University. They were playing UConn or the University of Connecticut. And uh, having grown up in South Carolina, I was kind of always a, a Clemson soccer fan and football fan. So I had the chance to go to this game, and I got there, and I decided to sit sort of in the student section, which was kind of fun because they were raucous and causing trouble and being loud, and it was a lot of fun. And then, you know, the poor little Yukon fans that were from, you know, hardly any of them had made their way down for the trip, sat somewhere else. And so the game went on. The first half kind of rolled along. Clemson was winning one to nothing. But really, Yukon was playing really attractive and beautiful soccer. And at the end of the day, as a soccer player, I just love to see good soccer. And so I found myself 
becoming more and more interested in UConn and really sort of loving the way they were playing. And then at the beginning of the second half, they tied it up, and it was tied one-to-one. And I found myself sitting in the middle of the student section, quietly pulling for UConn to win the game because the soccer they were playing was just so fantastic. Well, the uh, second half ended, it was tied one-to-one, and so it went to overtime. So the first overtime happened scoreless. The second overtime occurred scoreless, and then they went to a sudden death overtime. And by this point in time, I had really sort of fully embraced UConn just because they were playing just fantastic soccer. I still remember there was a kid named Darren Lewis who was a forward for UConn who was amazing. And there was another kid named Chris Bondi. They were both fantastic players. So I just was pulling for them, which again was awkward because I was sitting in the middle of Clemson's student section. And so the sudden death overtime came. And what happened was after sudden death, it would go to PKs. So I'm sitting there and you're kind of expecting it to go to penalty kicks when all of a sudden one of the players for UConn kicks the ball inside the 18, which is the the rectangle that's in front of the goal. And one of the UConn players, again, his name was Cesar Cuyeo or something like that. Again, I remember him chest trapping the ball and popping it up into the air. And then he leaned backwards and he did one of those things you've seen on TV sometimes called a bicycle kick. And he did a bicycle kick and it went in the goal in sudden death overtime. And so, of course, the players on the field were cheering. And of course, the, uh, you know, the UConn fans were going crazy. And of course, the Clemson fans around me in the middle of the student section I was in were despondent, and I couldn't help it. When the, the goal went in, I stood up in the middle of the student section, and I went, yeah, and I started yelling like this. I'm sure that to most people that were around me, my response was very, very unexpected. Now, we read a story here this evening in Matthew chapter 2 where we see a similarly unexpected response, not only by Herod, but also by the religious leaders. And frankly, we see an unexpected response by these men we called magi as well. And so let's dive into their responses very quickly. First, let's look at Herod's response. We can look at different verses, but we'll look at verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he was disturbed. The Herod we read of here in Matthew is Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great who oversaw the reconstruction of the temple. You can go to Jerusalem today and still see the Temple Mount there. He created what's called uh, Caesarea Maritime, which uh, is where he made a a sort of a man-made port there, which is unheard of 2,000 years ago. And he's the one that created Masada. If you have ever sort of studied Jewish history, Masada was this uh, fortress on top of a, a mountain, essentially. Herod Antipas, again, was his son. He would have taken over his father's reign uh, around Judea, uh, probably around 4 BC. And this is, again, this is the same Herod here at Antipas who had John the Baptist beheaded when John the Baptist criticized him for his divorce of his uh, current wife and then his subsequent uh, marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias. So if you're familiar with that story. We read here that when Herod, again, Herod Antipas, heard the news from the Magi, he was disturbed. He was disturbed. And the question is, why? Shouldn't he have been thrilled? Most Jews would have longed to be freed from Roman rule. Why wouldn't Herod? The answer is that the Messiah would have been a threat to his power and would have been a threat to his position. Both he and his father had been granted power by the Romans, they were in league with the Romans, to function as what's called petty kings over Judea, And here comes this caravan of Persian mystics who want to see the one who has been born king of 
the Jews. So you can see why Herod was a little insecure. His father was downright paranoid. So Herod is faced with a choice. He can either welcome the Messiah with gladness, or he could try to get rid of him. Of course, we read in verses 16 through 18 of this very same passage, Matthew 2, the decision that he made. I'm going to read it. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, they went home by a different route. He became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This mass murder, this mass killing, is what is known in history as the massacre of the innocents. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon at all in human history for dictators to remove any potential threats to their power. Just look at North Korea, and you could probably think of many other examples. The truth is that Jesus is a threat to our power and to our position and to our agenda as well. We all know that down deep inside. It isn't enough just to allow Jesus to be our guide in life, though surely he is. It isn't enough to simply allow Jesus to be our teacher, though he is that as well. And it isn't enough just to allow Jesus to be our Savior, though surely he is that. As Christians, we are called to surrender to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Listen to the words of Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Herod knew that the arrival of the Messiah meant surrendering his power and his position and his agenda, and Herod made his decision. We need to make our decision as well. We not only see the response of Herod, but we see the response of the religious leaders of Israel. Let's take a look and see how they responded in verse 4 through 6. Verse 4 begins, When he had called together all the people's chief priests, that is Herod calling them together, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, they immediately went to Herod. They surely would have assumed that the king of the Jews would have been born into the royal family and into the royal palace. After the wise men left the palace, not finding the Messiah there, they followed the star to Bethlehem. And when they did that, Herod called in all the religious leaders, the chief priests in the law and the studiers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was supposed to be born and being uh, good teachers of the law that they were, they got the answer right. They quoted the words of Micah 5, which prophesied that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. The Magi, as we know, planned to honor the Messiah. That was their plan. Herod, as we know, planned to try to kill him. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law did nothing. They didn't seem threatened like Herod. They didn't seem to be amazed or excited like the Magi. In fact, they seem largely unmoved. 
If anyone should have gone to Bethlehem to worship, it should have been them. It should have been the religious leaders. If anyone should have been thrilled by the fulfillment of this prophecy, it should have been them, but they weren't. Maybe they assumed that they had plenty of time to go see him. Maybe they were afraid of Herod. That's a possibility. But I think the most likely reason is that they assumed that there was no way that a bunch of Persian astrologers would get the birth of the Messiah correct, and they would miss it. I just don't think they thought that was possible. Regardless of what their motivation was, when faced with the incarnation, they did nothing. They did nothing. Some of us this Christmas season are like Herod. We're unwilling to surrender our autonomy to the Messiah. But others of us are more like the religious leaders. We're unmoved. Maybe we're distracted. Maybe we're just too tired. Maybe we'd just rather dive into our Instagram feed or into our latest Netflix binge. But like the religious leaders and like Herod, we do have a choice. My question for us this evening is what will our choice be? And then finally, we see in this passage the response of the Magi. Look at verses 9 through 11. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Once you dig into the Christmas story, you begin to expect the unexpected. It's actually completely the norm in the Christmas story. The story of the Magi or the wise men is no exception. The Magi were Persian astrologers. They were like the magicians and sorcerers we read about in the story of Daniel. They were like those same people that Moses encountered in Pharaoh's entourage back in Egypt who could also turn their staffs into snakes. Amazingly, however, it's these Persian astrologers who find a central place in the story of the incarnation. They were likely from uh, modern-day Iran, and so most scholars agree that their journey may have taken as much as two years, which is part of the reason that Herod had the baby boys under two years, two years and younger killed. And they likely would have traveled in a caravan from Iran to Israel, and the caravan would have been filled with camels, and it would have been filled with servants. It would have been a huge scene. The journey would have been very costly, and it would have made quite the scene as they entered into Israel. Well, they then take this caravan from Jerusalem, and they take it to Bethlehem. And when they find the home, Matthew tells us their response. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. That is the star over the home where Jesus was. Again, Herod was troubled. The religious leaders were nonplussed. But here are these pagans from some far, far away country, and they are the only ones who are overjoyed. In fact, the Greek says something like this. They rejoiced with great joy tremendously. It's a sort of clunky passage, but it emphasizes in three different ways just how excited they were. And then we're told that upon seeing the Christ child, they bowed down and worshiped him. So just imagine that scene for a moment. This caravan of wealthy Persian astrologers would have been dressed in fine robes. They would have been surrounded by camels and donkeys. They would have had servants waiting on them, and they arrive at what must have been a very humble home. They dismount, and then all of a sudden they start giving each other hugs and high fives. 
And then these wealthy and powerful foreigners bowed down to this Hebrew toddler. And we're told that they then worshipped him. The Jewish religious leaders would never have even thought to worship the Messiah. They would have considered it to be blasphemous. But to the Magi, it was the only appropriate response. Herod would never have humbled himself and bent his knee or bowed his head. Yet the wise men didn't seem for one instant to be concerned about decorum. They simply worshipped. And they gave him gifts fit for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Each Advent season, this Advent season, each of us is faced with a choice. How will we respond? Will we keep Jesus at arm's length because he threatens our power and he threatens our position, he threatens our agenda? Or will we choose to be distracted and numb, too busy to allow ourselves to truly see Emmanuel? Or rather, will we pause for just one moment and we will we worship this newborn king? Let me take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that this story of the incarnation is filled with twists and turns and uh, unexpected characters, Father, like teenage girls and like shepherds and wise men. And Father, I thank you that this story of the incarnation ought to shake us and wake us up so that, Father, we are not like Herod and uh, that we don't choose to keep you at arm's length or seek to silence your son. Father, and we at the same time don't choose to be like the religious leaders who aren't particularly interested and can't be bothered, Father, but rather I pray that as we look at these wise men that we too will choose to celebrate. Father, I pray that as we look at these wise men that we will choose to worship your son, Jesus. Father, it's in your son, Jesus' name that we pray all these things now.